you know, like a modern app, there's going to be like a RESTful API and it's relatively easy to connect to. We were connecting to back office applications, specifically ERPs, and where there's a lot of like legacy applications. And so yeah, I would say most of our, I would say at least half of the applications that we connect to don't have a RESTful API. And for probably like two years, we actually had both products that were like out there and we were like supporting some customers on the integration platform. We were supporting some customers on a learning management system. It was kind of too early to tell like which direction was going to be like the, the, the winning bet. I'm Rick Barkley and I'm the founder and CTO of CloudSnap. This is Code Story a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Richard Bart created a smart way to integrate your enterprise systems. All this and more on Code Story. Richard Barkley is a big traveler and has been all around the world. The first business he started was doing nonprofit work in Uganda. He's a family man, and he's adopted several children from China, so he's obviously been there a few times. In total, he has six kids, three biological and three adopted. He graduated with a finance degree and then taught himself how to code, and after having a few engineering jobs, he then started his own business. He's a lifelong learner and reads a ton. Currently, he's reading the former President Obama's latest book. But in fact, he reads all types of books, biographies, tech books, economics, even books about extraterrestrials. After working for Dell, he grew tired of not moving the needle much, no matter how hard he worked. So he started a company called Nuvola Networks, innovating around e-learning. While doing this, he noticed how manual the flow of information was between antiquated systems for larger companies and enterprises. He thought, why don't we automate this? This is the creation story of CloudSnap. So uh, so CloudSnap is, at its core, it's an integration platform. At its root, it's, it's about moving data from one application to another application. Um, one of our big partners currently is SAP Concur. And this is an example of what we do. Somebody has an expense report or an invoice or something like that over on the Concur side. Ultimately, they need to move that into their backend financial system, like their ERP. So you can think like NetSuite or Sage Intact or Microsoft Dynamics or something like that. And so somebody creates an expense report over in Concur. Our platform would grab that expense report we would map that data into the ERP. And obviously it's not as easy as just like mapping something from point A to point B because the data that originates and concur isn't in the right format for just posting it directly into an ERP. And so there's a lot of like business logic that we encapsulate in our workflow engine and uh, like data modification and things like that. At, at its core, that's, that's, that's the product. How CloudSnap started was I was working for Dell and I was just tired of working for like the, working for the man, like just like a cog in a wheel. I mean, Dell's a giant company. You can do a good job and it's, you don't really feel like you're moving the needle all that much just because, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of employees there. And so I really just wanted to get out of that and start, start my own company. 
through talking with some various acquaintances, we ended up forming a business called Nivola Networks. We actually built an e-learning platform, like an online learning management system. And we got into various niches there. One of like our sort of like the biggest things that happened with Nivola is we signed a contract with the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement to essentially manage all of their training through the Nivola platform. One of the big things that we kind of realized, and this I think is, you know, common when you kind of go into some of these like government agencies, but the systems were very antiquated. They were trying to, there's a, there's a separate database in Texas called TCLEDS that essentially houses all like an officer's training records and things like that. To get training data into TCLEDS, it's a fairly manual process, very similar to like the Concur style deal where you might like download an Excel sheet from a learning management system, make a bunch of modifications and upload it into TCLEDS, or you're like manually just typing in a bunch of stuff. The first thing that I kind of like said whenever I started work with Texas Commission on Law Enforcement is like, why don't we automate this? Like, how about whenever somebody completes a training, we just automatically post it into the uh, um, that other application. And they were like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and so instead of just building like a one-off thing, I ended up building a platform, sort of like the first version of our integration platform. And then we went to all the other police agencies in Texas and basically said like, hey, listen, use our learning management system and we can automatically report all your training into TCLEDS. So you don't have to worry about manually doing it anymore. But like the way that I kind of explain it to folks is like our learning management technology, I would say was like average, but our differentiator was all around the integration. And then as that grew, we started, we did end up start, starting to talk to folks outside of the sort of government agency space. And a lot of folks were like, we're not really that interested in your learning management system, but hey, your um, integration platform, that actually is something that we could, that we could use. Can you integrate apps like this? And so we just started building out, you know, a few other apps that like app connectors that we could, you know, connect into our ecosystem. So all of the Nivola stuff was completely bootstrapped. So we didn't have any VC funding or anything like that. In 2018, as we kind of saw the market for the integration really start to take off, we worked with a company called Active Capital and we did an initial 500K seed round. And part of that was we spun off CloudSnap as a separate company and Active Capital invested uh, their money in CloudSnap. Right around that same time is when we also uh, got our partnership with Concur. And really within a year, we became Concur's like go-to uh, integration partner. That's a little bit about the about our about our journey and and how we got there. So I would say it was more like serendipitous than just like foresight and planning on my part. <laughs> well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me about how long it took to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. We're a Ruby on Rails shop, and so that's sort of like our core technology that we use to build the MVP and our app is still on Ruby and Rails. One of the things that I really like about it is when it comes to building MVPs, it's very fast. I would say it's, it's, there's kind of, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. It's very fast to build like a pretty slick looking MVP that you can kind of like put out into the market um, and get traction. And so I would say that we built the MVP probably in 
probably like in three to six months, I would say, because I mean, there was a lot of like things that we had to worry about, like for instance, on Premier P, so we had to build an agent that could communicate back up to our platform and, and things like that. But I'd say all in all probably was three to six months to build the MVP. One of the things that, that we really struggled with was we actually had very fast adoption. You know, you're talking about something that's fairly technical, moving data in between financial systems. Some of our first customers were like publicly traded customers and things like that. And so we had to like mature the product very quickly. And so that's kind of why I think that sometimes it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you can get, you can certainly get something out there that looks like it has a lot more capability than it really does. And then, you know, you're kind of behind the eight ball in regards to like really fleshing out actual production ready product. I think that problem is better than the alternative, which is why aren't customers buying my thing? <laughs> How do I get more customers? <laughs> With any MVP, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs of you know what you can build in the short term, what you have to cut in the short term, any sort of technical debt you take on. So tell me a little bit about those decisions and trade-offs and, and how did you cope with them? I guess the way that I would explain it is whenever we were building our MVP, we didn't have any financial back. And I, you know, I wasn't like inherently wealthy or anything like that. And so, um, and yeah, I've, as we talked about, I had a bunch of kids. <laughs> so I had to, had to, you know, put food on the table and all that sort of stuff. Our MVPs were very like, the goal was let's just like validate that there's a market here. And so I would say it was much more heavy on the technical debt. We're going to have to rewrite some of this stuff if we actually want to push it to production and scale it in a massive way. It's not like we had like millions of dollars sitting in the bank and could spend, because I've, I've worked at startups where that was the case, where they basically got funding before they had any customers and they had a few million dollars in a year to build a product and then, you know, six to seven months to see if they could make it work. And so I think in those situations, you can really afford to build the product you really want for the long term. Whereas in the situation I was in, it was, let's get the most bare bones thing out there that we know we're gonna to have to rewrite, but we can validate that there's a market for it. After having gone through both experiences, like there really are pros and cons and trade-offs with either way. When you have a lot of money in the bank and you can kind of just like build the product you want, if the product's successful, you end up with like a much more mature product. If it's not successful, you kind of waste a year. So I think on the front where we're completely bootstrapped, like we had to know within like two or three months if this thing was gonna work or not. So that was kind of the approach that we took. Certainly the negative side is as it starts to scale, you kind of run into that, oh man, we're gonna have to scale this. And then it's like, you know, how fast does it scale? How fast does it need to scale? We were in a position where we had to scale much quicker than we anticipated. And there was a decent amount of tech debt and things that we kind of knew going into it that we'd have to like rewrite it in a better way to actually scale the product. So you got the MVP done, you work through those decisions, you know, you're going to have to, as far as like, you want to build it one way, but you're going to build it fast so that you can get it out there, but then rebuild it later. How did you progress the product from there? And how did you mature it? And what's probably most, most interesting is how did you build your roadmap? You know, what did you, what did you do to decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? So, I mean, I'd say at the beginning, a lot of it was customer driven because in our industry and our product specifically, you have like the core platform, which 
is kind of like all the brains of like mapping data and moving data around and things like that. Each application has to have a separate connector. You know, like a modern app, it's there's going to be like a RESTful API and it's relatively easy to connect to. We were connecting to back office applications, specifically ERPs, where there's a lot of like legacy applications. And so I would say at least half of the applications that we connect to don't have a RESTful API. Um, they're either using like a SOAP a web service or they're using some sort of like proprietary communication type type deal that they just wrote themselves um, that we have to link into or there's like an SDK or something like that. So there's actually quite a bit of work that has to go into just like creating the connectors and that's like completely outside of the platform. Certainly a decent part of the roadmap is just creating more connectors, like more apps that we can connect to. And some connectors would be like super simple to build, especially if it was again, like a more modern app that had like a restful um, interface. Uh, some were like very technical to figure out how to, how do we actually move data back and forth. And then again, uh, I mean, I'd say probably half the ERPs that we work with are on-prem. And so they're, they're, not even, they're not in the cloud. We have to have an agent that essentially communicates via WebSockets back up to our platform and, and also a connector that kind of facilitates the connection portion of it. And so, there's, there's quite a bit of work there. And then I guess on the platform side, a lot of it was customer driven. So customers would need to map data in different ways, or they would need to do different things that our app didn't necessarily support. And so it was adding those features. We're also sort of like working on like foundational stuff that like, you know, like nobody really cares about. We know if we want to get to you know X number of transactions, we need to have a different architecture. And so we did things like you know, like move to move to Docker and things like that. There's very different styles of integration companies out there. You know, on one side you might have like a like a MuleSoft, for instance, who they have an integration platform, but they also have this giant services arm and they do like these massive engagements where they're integrating all this stuff and it's very like services driven and, and, that, and that whole product is kind of geared towards like a technical user. Like people can get like certified on the MuleSoft platform. On the complete opposite extreme, you have like a Zapier. It's, it's geared towards a business user. It's very simple to use. I would say the, the negative side on the Zapier is a lot of times there's not as much customizability and flexibility. Couldn't necessarily integrate concur into an ERP the way that you need to, to kind of like match your business processes. Our big push really is how can we create a self-service platform that a business user can use to do more complex um, integrations. You know, ultimately the direction that we're going is building a self-service platform for a business user. Anybody like an accounting person in company XYZ should be able to utilize, use our platform to connect, concur, build whatever business logic they need into it, and ultimately sync concur data up to their ERP or whatever that whatever the application. Because you know when we kind of started out, it's like we didn't really know what was going to stick necessarily. And when we kind of like realized, okay, there's sort of like two or three key themes. Now we need to continue to like narrow the focus. We got to choose one and go all in on that. So let's switch to team then. So how did you build your team? And, you know, what, what I'm interested in is what did you look for in those people to indicate they were the winning horses to join you? I mean, to start out, just to be honest, like I just hired people that I knew. Obviously, I worked for other engineering orgs. And so I hired people that I had experience working with and sort of I kind of like knew their capabilities. My background was... 
was like self-taught, right? I really was like looking for people that had a hunger to learn and were creative and could like think outside the box. Like that was kind of like, I valued that over like technical skill. I think if I were to do it over again, I would have a more mixed strategy where I also had people that had more technical experience and just were more um, senior. Because at the end of the day, if you have a bunch of like really creative people that are passionate about learning, but are all relatively new at something that I don't know that that's actually the best way to do it. I think it's kind of like a, like a mix. And I'd say that we were more on the, we don't really like necessarily know what we're doing, but we can figure it out. <laughs> and um, that was kind of the, how, how we went about it. And again, I don't know, I, I, I certainly see like some weaknesses in that model. <laughs> and if I were to do it differently, I, I don't think I, I would necessarily go that route again, or I would just have more of a hybrid approach, but that's how, how we did it. And, and again, like the for up until fairly, you know, like a year ago, like building the initial product and all that, it was really just me and um, two other people. So it's not like we had like a, on the engineering side, it's not like we had like a large, a large engineering team or anything like that. Well, let's switch to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently in the beginning or were you fighting this as you grew? We definitely were fighting it as we grew. I, I mean, I guess I would say that the scalability was not necessarily like, can we support the number of transactions? So it wasn't like scalable from like a technology, like, like our servers would get overran or something like that, right? Like we had, you know, auto scaling and, you know, Docker eyes and things like that. So at a, at a core architecture level, we, we didn't really run into any scale issues and we kind of were fine there. You know, like if you read like the, like the lean startup or something like that, you know, when you talk about like an MVP, you know that there's going to be manual processes that you have to do. You know, the idea is that, okay, as we grow, we take these manual processes and we automate them. This is an example in our product, the initial version and really like where we are now, the business user can't necessarily build a workflow. I would say it's just too, it's too technical for them to be able to do that. And so we have a team that we call our automation engineers. And so they actually work with customers and they help customers build the workflows to automate the data. So that's that's just an example of something that whenever this thing really started taking off, we would get like 30 or 40 customers a month. We had like a super small automation engineering team. Even as we were hiring people, people had to learn the product, learn how to build workflows, learn you know some simple accounting principles and things like that. And so that that's really where the can we scale kind of like broke down just in like building processes around how we get a customer from point A to point B. And then also just the lack of people and um, and yeah, just the processes that, that we needed to build around our platform that just, those are the things that kind of like got missed. Cause you know, I was kind of more focused on the technology, much less focused on the actual processes. We just kind of got to a place where we're like, oh man, we got to build out these processes very quickly um, because we're bringing on customers. And so we certainly, at the beginning, we certainly had a, just a churn issue because customers would sign up and it would be, it would take them too long to get live on the platform and then they would end up, end up leaving. And so um, those were just some of the things that were hard to kind of work through. Obviously, if we knew that we were going to get that many customers that quickly, we would have done things differently, but we just had, had no idea how fast it was going to, it was going to take off. 
that can destroy a business just as easily as not having customers. The other sort of interesting thing about the business is oh, a lot of our customers were coming from Concur as referrals. And so as some of those customer experiences didn't go as good as we had hoped, um, that obviously gets back to Concur. And so there's there were certainly times where, you know, we were really working to make sure that Concur understood that, hey, we're going through some growing pains, but you know, we have a we have an ultimate solution here. And and those things are hard. And that that can also like equally, you know, ruin a, a business. And so there's quite a few things that we did. I mean, like for instance, we actually tripled our pricing. So one, it slowed down the number of customers that we had coming on the platform. And and two, we were just pricing it pricing too low to begin with. Up until really this point, I was I wasn't actually the CTO, I was the CEO of the company. So I was the founder and CEO and kind of running the whole thing. And at this point, I kind of realized that building all these processes around this startup that's kind of like phasing into like not being a startup anymore, but into like a real company. I was not the guy to do that. And so um, we actually hired somebody, a guy from Rackspace that our investors knew, and uh, we hired him to be our CEO. And he, he was the one that kind of like implemented a lot of processes around, okay, what we're doing and raising prices and things like that. So as you step out on the balcony, and you look across what you've built with CloudSnap, what are you most proud of? I kind of like lived the dream in a sense. Um, you know, I had an idea, built it, saw it kind of come to fruition. A bunch of people and you know businesses are using the platform to move data. It's not like I had this like dream and I was like super passionate about integration or something like that. I was more passionate about wanting to build a business and wanting to you know, become an entrepreneur. And so that was really like the driving force. And I was kind of just like looking for ideas and things that could get me there. And so it's not, when I look out across the balcony, it's not necessarily like, you know, hey, I solved the integration problem that I wanted to solve. I actually think that that's still something that we're working on. But it's much more of like, man, I did what a lot of people attempt to do and are unable to. We kind of uh, made this thing, made this thing successful. <laughs> and, and, you know, as I talked about, there's all sorts of um, pitfalls. It wasn't all like, you know, rainbows and unicorns. There were a lot of like really hard times where I was like, oh man, I don't know that this thing's going to actually make it. Um, especially during the bootstrap days when we were like struggling to make payroll and, and all that sort of stuff. And so for me personally, it's very rewarding to kind of just see like, man, I actually was able to do it. I was able to stay persistent and not give up, even when it seemed like all the cards were stacked against us. Okay, well, let's flip the script a little bit then. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. You know, the nature of what we're doing, like data integrity is very important because I mean, you're moving data into a customer's financial system, right? especially if it's a public company, I mean, that data, the data that we're integrating and moving back and forth ultimately is what their financials are reported on or reported from and what's get, what gets reported to Wall Street. And so there was certainly times at the beginning that, you know, we were really like trying to work through, like making sure that every transaction made it through. And if a transaction didn't make it through, somebody was alerted. So there was certainly some like learning experiences along the lines there. I mean, I guess I would say that we took the MVP to market too soon. 
we would have been better if we had taken another like three to six months to really build it out. Again, I think that's a mistake that's very obvious in hindsight, but would have been a very hard decision to do at the time just because we didn't know it was going to take off like it did. Some of the businesses I'd started beforehand, like Novola, like the learning management, that was like this very like slow, methodical growth. Like I was kind of like compare it, like, like selling there was like, like pulling teeth and selling on the cloud stamp side was like, I barely had to talk about it and people were signing up. I was just like, man, we got to get on this bandwagon. We got to, you know, strike while the iron's hot. So I really pushed our sales team to sell like crazy. We definitely got ahead of ourselves and we should have slowed down the, you know, the sales bandwagon, I guess, and really made sure that we were building a more mature product as we were bringing customers on board. What does the future look like for your product and for your team? Again, we're kind of like in a, in a, in high growth mode. We're actually tripling the size of our engineering team, like over the next couple of months. So we're hiring a bunch of people, you know, I'm just on like the financing side. We're at a pretty solid place. We closed a series a a few months ago. We're really going all in on the self-service product, basically creating a Zapier like experience for back office integration. Certainly over the next year, that's the big focus. Continue to sell what we have, keep our customer base happy, build out additional features, but really like working on this self-service product that will allow somebody in accounting to go in and set up all their stuff on their own. And I think that if we're able to accomplish that, you know, there's a giant market out there for that. I mean, everything's trending towards these like low code or no code solutions and where we're, you're really like putting the tools in the hands of like a non-technical user. And so that's the, that's the big foot push for the future of the product. So let's switch to you, Rick. Who influences the way that you work? Be it a CEO, a CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. Probably my biggest hero at this point would be like somebody like Elon Musk. Especially when I was like in the CEO position, I like the fact that he's a CEO, but he also got like very technical. And it's not like he was just sort of like leading the company into sort of and leading the vision and left all the technical aspects up to the other team. He was like getting into the, the nitty gritty of it, or it certainly seems like he is, right? And, um, and that's kind of like the, like I enjoy trying to figure out solutions to hard problems. And also just really like the, just like the way he thinks about things from like a first principles perspective. I mean, I think that you can very easily see it with like electric cars. Like, I mean, to me, it's like super bizarre, like, you know, like five years ago when people were like, ah, is this thing really gonna happen or not? Like, is it really gonna be like much of a business in electric cars? Like, you know that fossil fuel is like a finite thing. Like it's not unlimited. And so if you just think about it logically, that at some point is going to no longer be a viable way. I mean, even if you take out all the climate change and all that stuff out of the equation, it's just a finite material that at some point is going to not be sustainable. And so you know that there has to be something beyond that. To expect the people that are working on those things um, that they're not gonna have a viable solution seems like that seems much crazier of a bet, right? So I kind of just like appreciate the way that he goes about thinking about problems. And it's certainly something that we try to incorporate into our company. And, and you know, that was kind of one of the factors that kind of led us going down really like that self-service, no code solution. It's like, I mean, I think that's ultimately where the future's going and we want to be building a product 
towards the future, not something that fits into now, but isn't going to be applicable maybe 10 to 10 years from now. So, you know, we talked about mistakes, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? So, I mean, I think I think a couple things. I mean, one, and I would have hired more expertise. I think that that was something that kind of like led us astray a little bit. I, I think a second thing would, I, I would have slowed the growth down instead of just, you know, kind of going pedal pedal to the metal. Um, I would have like narrowed the product like much sooner. Again, it was like, like our approach was very much like a, I mean, you can kind of see it. Like we, we pivoted from a learning management platform to an integration platform. Like those are two like radically different things. <laughs> and for probably like two years, we actually had both products that were like out there and we were like supporting some customers on the integration platform. We were supporting some customers on a learning management system just because, you know, it was like, it was kind of too early to tell like which direction was going to be like the, the the winning bet. I think that if I had like narrowed the focus much sooner, we could have been much further ahead. And, the, and there's also like a lot of other like, like even like on the integration platform, there's like a ton of other stuff, like random features that we had on there that it could do. We had toyed around a little bit with like a no code um, app builder. And so we had like all these like different features to like build applications to this platform and um, all these random different services that were kind of like tacked on that we were just kind of exploring different markets and different themes and things like that. And so it very much was like a, we kind of know the direction that we're going, but we're not sure. And let's kind of like put a bunch of stuff out there. I think that if we had gone all in on integration, specifically a self-service integration experience much sooner, I think that we'd have been way, way better off. Again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who has built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think that the biggest thing that kind of like propelled me to success really is just persistence. There's a ton of ups and downs. I'm sure that you've seen like the HBO show Silicon Valley and it's it's amazing like how similar that is to real life where you'll have days where it's like this is like this is going to make it. It's amazing. I can't believe that um, we did it. And then, oh my gosh, our business is going to go under. How are we going to, how are we going to succeed? <laughs> and there's a lot of those. And I think really having that determination and persistence to stay the course as those hard times and those valleys come up, I think that's the biggest key to success. Because I mean, lots of people could have done what we did from a technological perspective that really it's just that persistence is the key. And um, I guess there's another sort of thing that I heard a while ago that I think is very true. And um, like, I don't know if you know the author, Jim Collins, um, he wrote um, from, uh, I think the book from good to great. I, I was listening to him being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. I think he was talking about uh, the role of luck in, 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 in successful people and the luck play a role. His sort of premise was like, like didn't play any sort of role at all. And he did a bunch of research and his team did a bunch of research and they came back and kind of said, you know what? Luck does play a role, but it's a little bit different than what you might expect. It's not that successful people are more lucky 
than unsuccessful people. They're better at capitalizing on luck. And I think that's one of the keys as well is really just kind of having a having a mindset of understanding like how can we capitalize on some of these like seemingly serendipitous experiences or events that are happening. I think that combined with just that determination and persistence are probably the two biggest things that helped me get to where I am. Nah, that's good advice. Well, Rick, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of CloudSnap. Yeah, totally, man. Excited to uh, excited to do it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.